Good morning, Church in the Valley. I'm Matt Sprinkle, and I'm an associate pastor here, and I'm glad that you've joined us. I'm going to continue our series that we're in, which is Questions People Ask. And uh, we want to address the big questions related to Christ, the Bible, and the church. We hope that your faith is strengthened by these sermons and that God uses them to really break you free uh, from any kind of doubt or confusion uh, that can keep you from being fruitful for Jesus Christ. In my life, uh, especially when I first became a Christian, there were questions and there were uh, things I didn't understand that honestly held me back from trusting and obeying God. And right about the point that I was about to make another big leap of faith or trust God and obey him in some specific way, that's when these thoughts, these doubts, these questions would come up. And you maybe, maybe you've experienced that as well. So we, we're just hoping that as we address these questions head on, that God uses them to help you grow in your faith in some way. Today I'm going to be addressing the question that a lot of people have, which is, what about Christians who don't act Christian? Right? You might have heard that on television. Maybe you've heard somebody say that to you in person or maybe online. I remember I was once listening to a, um, a series of focus groups that was done in four of the largest cities in the United States. The focus groups were paid for by a large church in the Northwest. And uh, like I said, they were done in four different cities. And they had groups of men and groups of women who lived in those cities. And each focus group spent about two hours inter- interviewing uh, these men and these women. Uh, the company that was doing it was a professional company that did it for corporations all over the world. Uh, the lady who was moderating was not a Christian. And everybody who was selected to be a part of the focus group was also not a Christian. And the purpose was to kind of find out what non-Christians or people who are discovering or looking into following Christ, what they have to say about the church, the Bible, Christianity, to better understand objections people have to our faith. And uh, the audio files were made available online, and so I listened to them. There's over 16 hours of interview. And uh, one of the things that I noticed very quickly was that uh, these people had a very low, very low opinion of Christians, the church, the Bible, and in many cases, Christ. Uh, they would often say things like this. Christians are legalistic, judgmental, hypocritical, intolerant. They use words like bigots and uh, prejudice, anti-science, anti-women, anti-gay, uneducated, cult, backwards, closed-minded. And all of these charges, all of them together, basically said that Christians don't act Christian. At least that's not what the focus groups thought. And in our culture today, especially among young people, you often hear people say that uh, they don't want to be Christians because uh, they don't want to act like Christians act. They don't want to be closed-minded or intolerant like Christians. And this is a common refrain that you're hearing nowadays. Now, there are many people who have felt judged when they go to church, judged about how they look, how they talk, about their lifestyle. And other people have seen scandals and corruption uh, in the Catholic Church with the priests and mega churches with the pastors. They see these things and they say, these people are hypocrites. And why would I ever consider being a Christian? A popular way of thinking about the Bible is to think of the Bible as a book of rules, uh, the good things you have to do to make God like you and let you into heaven. And so Christians are also accused of being legalistic a lot. Now, obviously, not every charge or accusation that is being made against the church, against Christians, is well-founded. But it's also an equal mistake to claim that no one has a right to feel these ways and that nothing wrong has ever been done because that's not true. Christians can and Christians have been all three of these things. Christians can be and have been legalistic. 
They have used the law to control people. Christians can be and have been hypocritical. They can hide the truth about who they are to control. And Christians can be and have been judgmental at times, using condemnation to manipulate and to control. You notice there's a theme in all three of these, which is it's about control. It's about power. To the degree that this has happened to you, who are watching this this morning, to the degree that this has happened to you, I want to say that it's wrong. That it's a sin. And that God calls it a sin, and so should we. And if you or someone you love have been hurt by these types of things in a church or by Christians, I want to say that I'm sorry. I'm sorry that that's happened to you. And if you've experienced these kinds of things as a representative of Christ, as a Christian myself, uh, this is not who Jesus is. And this is not what Jesus stands for. Jesus doesn't teach or model or command any of his followers to be legalistic, hypocritical, or judgmental. Actually, it's just the opposite, as we're going to see in a bit. So why are Christians doing this then? Why aren't they acting the way Christians should act? Right? That's what the focus group wanted to know. That's what a lot of people in our culture say. Well, first, it's important to state that all Christians are not actually living this way, as I said before. And the second is that this is not just a Christian problem or a religion problem. It's a human problem. Legalism, hypocrisy, being judgmental, it's not confined to the church or confined to religion. It's something characteristic of all people, every culture, every group, throughout history. You see the human race deploying these strategies for the same reasons, no matter which age you look at. The reason why this is such a common problem is because it's built into our nature. These are forms of sins. And all of us are infected with the same sinful nature as everyone else. We can all be selfish. We can all be proud. We can all be violent. It's our natural state, according to what the Bible says. It's the natural state of all mankind. Human beings can be judgmental. Human beings can be legalistic. Human beings can be hypocritical. Christian human beings, Muslim human beings, atheist human beings, old and young, black and white, rich and poor, we can all engage in these kinds of strategies. It's not justified. That's not what I'm saying. Please don't misunderstand. It's not justified. But it is natural. It's a real problem. And you know what's funny is you see this on almost every page of the Bible. You know, one of the things that really testifies to the veracity, to the truthfulness, to the credibility of the Bible, is that it doesn't pull any punches when it comes to the people that you read in the Bible. Oftentimes, books or letters are written by people who themselves are in those books or letters, and they don't pull any punches. They don't make themselves look good. For example, Abraham, the father of the faith of all three monotheistic religions, Abraham, in the book of Genesis, is very clearly portrayed as a man who's willing to essentially give his wife to someone else to sleep with as long as he is protected and his life is secure, right? In the book of uh, Genesis, you see Jacob and the, the chaos of his family because of his poor parenting. You see the brothers of Joseph sell him into slavery. You see in the Bible, the great King David, who is a man after God's own heart, and yet 
With great detail, the Bible recounts how he not only seduced another man's wife, got her pregnant, hid it, but then he had her husband murdered so that he could cover his sin. That's in the Bible. In the same book that shows the great deeds of David, they show that. You see it in the judges, people like Samson and Jephthah and Othniel. These people are not held up as great moral examples. They are held up for reasons that are clear as you read the scriptures, but you see all sorts of compromised moral people throughout the scriptures. And the point is this. When you read the Bible, you're looking at a reflection of human nature, not Christian nature, not secular nature, human nature. And what you see is that everyone is infected with sin, the whole human race. In fact, if you were to take all the Bible says about our our natural condition, if you were to boil it down, as Paul did in Romans, uh, you may say something like he did in Romans 3.10 through 3.12. In it, he says, no one is righteous. No, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. That's a big statement. No one does good. Mother Teresa, Gandhi, pick your favorite saint. No one does good. Well, yeah, if you compare those people to me, they look great. If you compare those people to you, maybe they look better. But if you compare those people to who God designed us to be, if you compare those people to the standard that God is applying to the human race, when you compare those people and their lives to the lives that God designed them to live, All humans fall short, far short of what God intended. If you want to know what a perfect human life looks like, you look at Jesus. You compare yourself to him. And the more you get to know Jesus, the clearer and clearer your own sin and your own faults are manifest. And very quickly you realize that you don't have a leg to stand on before God. That everyone, including yourself, is infected with something that can override your will that can corrupt your vision, and that can lead you through really destructive desires to do things that you know you shouldn't do. The Bible calls that sin, and we all have it. And this is why you see hypocrisy, judgmentalism, and legalism in the church. You really wouldn't expect anything else. Now, I don't mean that it's okay or that it's not something that we don't overcome and grow out of in time. I mean that all of us are a work in progress, that a church is a collection of people who are all broken sinners, who are being saved by God and transformed by him at different places in that transformation, that all of us put our faith in Jesus as the perfect man who fulfilled the law and lived the life that God desired. He and his works are what justify us. We all acknowledge that we have so much more to do and grow in. I acknowledge it. What's not natural, what's not a part of our nature, what you wouldn't really expect is all the selflessness and sacrifice that we see in Jesus Christ. He's not a typical person. There's something different and special about Jesus. Just from an observer's point of view, he never sinned. But he lived a life of courage and truth, goodness and love. What's amazing is that even though he saw all of our sin, He didn't judge us. Jesus never condemned us. He didn't use the law to control us. He loved us and died for us. And the truth is, many of the good things in our world today, 
that we see in our culture and that we take for granted, these have been done by his most faithful followers. Hospitals and orphanages, they didn't exist in the Roman world until the churches created them to take care of not only Christians, but Romans. Romans who had treated the church so brutally for so long. You have people like Mother Teresa, who served the poorest in Calcutta, William Wilberforce and the Methodist movement in England around the turn of the the century between 1700 and 1800, fought to the abolition of slavery, and they were successful. Abolitionists in America, Christians who had deep convictions about the, the dignity of human life, fought to abolish slavery. These people took their faith, they were willing to pay a price, and they made the world a better place. There are martyrs throughout history in China today who are refusing to deny the truth and are worshiping God. So as we ask the question about why people are acting the way they do, or specifically why do Christians act a certain kind of way, we aren't describing all or even the majority of Christians. We're talking about some. Nevertheless, these are questions that people are asking. So I'd like us to look at each of these charges specifically, define our terms so that we understand really what we're talking about and what Jesus has to say about it. So first of all, why are Christians judgmental? What does that word mean? Well, according to the dictionary, judgmental means having or displaying an excessively critical point of view. Okay? Usually this question is raised by an impression that someone is too critical to a certain thing or of a way of life. What about being legalistic? Why are Christians so legalistic? Well, according to the definition of the dictionary, legalism is giving too much attention to legal rules and details. Usually this question Why are Christians so legalistic? Usually this question arises because people seem to only see the rules and stress uh, following the rules, no matter what. There's just this kind of rigid application of the law, of the rules, and it's a way of kind of getting control of a situation and making sure people do what you think they should do. And of course that happens. Why are Christians hypocritical? Hypocrisy is simulation. Deceitful appearance, false pretenses. It's wearing a mask to hide who you really are. And the question is usually aimed at people who say one thing and then do another. These people may appear fake and plastic. I think all of us have encountered people like this. And if we're honest, I think all of us have been guilty of doing these things. Why do people do this? Why do we do it? Well, as I've already mentioned, this is a human problem. It's not just a Christian problem. We all use these strategies as a way to get what we want. And these approaches, they, they flow out of our desires and our desire to have and to control situations the way we want them. You may want to control people, and it's easy to be legalistic so you can ensure people do what you think they should do. You take the rules, you take the law, and you say, you got to do it this way. If you don't, you hammer people. You may want to appear like you don't struggle, so you can maintain power or your reputation or your status in a group, so you're a hypocrite. You live one life in private, another life in public. All of these things are power plays. They're all forms of manipulation and domination. That's why they're demonic. This is what Satan does to get control. He manipulates and he dominates through these forms and these strategies. We don't want to be a part of that. So what do we do when we see in ourselves hypocrisy, legalism, and judgmentalism, which I can see in myself, and I'm sure you could see in yourself. Maybe if it's not now, perhaps in the past, and it could be in the future. What do we do? 
The answer is, is we admit it. We confess it. That's what the Bible calls admitting your sin. Confession. We confess it. We don't deny it. We don't hide it. We confess it to God, and we confess it to one another, and then we repent. And what that means in the Bible is we stop doing it. We turn around and we start handling this area of our life in a way that pleases God, as revealed to us in the Bible. That's what we do. We don't excuse it or justify it. We simply acknowledge the truth of it and allow God to transform us a little bit more, a little bit more. And this is the Christian life. The Christian life is not an event. It's a process. The day you get saved, the day that you first give your life to Christ and make him your king, the day that the spirit begins to give you the power and the desires to deal with your sin nature, that's the first day, not the last day. And across your life, God is constantly using people and the Bible and circumstances and other things to bring your attention to defects in your moral character, in your nature. And as you become clearer and clearer with the sin in your life, God begins to give you the power to repent and overcome it. And like I said, a church is a collection of people at all different stages in this process. We're not racing each other or even comparing ourselves to one another. We are faithful to the Lord as he works inside of us. We can help one another as brothers and sisters, of course. We are all sinners. And so we admit these things and we repent. Jesus came to save us from sins like this. And Jesus talks about these things a lot. In fact, the Bible continually shows us that Jesus hated all forms of manipulation and oppression. Jesus was totally against these things. Jesus can hate forms of manipulation and oppression because he is the only one to be innocent of these labels and these charges. He never manipulated. He never oppressed. He was never a hypocrite or legalistic. He was not judgmental, even though he had the right to judge. In the Gospel of Matthew, you can find numerous interactions of Jesus with a lot of religious leaders. And these people were the cream of the cream, uh, the top of the class. They were the ruling group. There was uh, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and I'm not going to get into the difference between the two of them, but these religious groups were kind of in charge over the nation of Israel, over God's people. And they use these strategies big time. A lot of hypocrisy, a lot of controlling people by making sure they follow the rules. <laughs> a lot of judgmentalism when people didn't. And this is how they maintained their power and status. This was how they were able to go to Rome and say, look, you've got to deal with us because we're in charge of them. Jesus comes into this world and he wants to set us free from this mess. This is not what God intended when he created the human race. And Jesus has come to restore the project that God began in the garden before the fall. So Jesus comes to these religious leaders. And in Matthew 22 and 23, both groups are asking questions to set Jesus up and to take him out. Because he's challenging their power. He's not playing by their rules. And the people, their hearts are starting to go out to Jesus because he's not like anyone they've ever seen or heard of. Jesus knew this, and so he responded in some pretty astonishing ways. So take a listen. This is Matthew 23, verses 1 through 4. This is from an eyewitness. His name was Matthew, and he was with Jesus for three and a half years in his earthly ministry. He saw the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and he recorded the things that Jesus did and said so that we could have it and we could know it ourselves. So in Matthew 23, here's what happens. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. They're in charge. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. Obey their commands, 
but don't copy their lifestyle. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, rules, a lot of rules. And they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Now, how many labels, hypocrisy, judgmentalism, legalism, how many labels do you see Jesus addressing here? Does he sound like a fan? He's not. Jesus accused the scribes and the Pharisees as people, uh, and you can, you can listen to these people, but don't follow these people. They don't practice or live out what they teach. And isn't this the essence of being a hypocrite? Isn't that what Jesus is saying? Knock it off. Knock off the hypocrisy. He also mentions that they put burdens on people, impossible to bear. Isn't this the essence of legalism and being judgmental? You have all these rules, spoken and unspoken, in your family, in your marriage, in your relationship, at your work, in your church, in your country, politically correct. That's one of the words we use to describe it, right? Towing the party line, right? Don't get on their bad side. Walking on eggshells. We have all these euphemisms and alternative phrases to describe it, but basically there's a set of rules and you better follow them because if you don't, you're going to get a whack. And that's what Jesus is criticizing. Nobody wants to live in that world. Christians don't want to live in it. Non-Christians don't want to live in it. And Jesus condemns it. Jesus is saying, watch out for these people. Don't follow them. The good news about Jesus is he didn't just say this and then leave people alone. He lived the opposite. He was the opposite of these things, and he invited all people to follow him in his new way of living. He gave people a fresh start, like Zacchaeus, the sinner tax collector. You've probably heard the story, but Zacchaeus was a tax collector who ripped off a bunch of his countrymen. And when he heard Jesus and he decided to follow Jesus, he paid them all back, times four. His life was transformed. But everybody hated Zacchaeus. Nobody wanted to get around him. But Jesus, he was friends with Zacchaeus. He was friends with people that nobody liked. And for good reason, because Jesus didn't exclude people. He could have judged them, but he didn't, because he wasn't judgmental. Like the woman at the well. If you haven't heard the story, but in uh, John chapter 4, Jesus goes to a place called Samaria. And Samaritans were people that Jews treated very badly. They were very judgmental towards the Samaritans. Jesus went through Samaria, which was not really something that uh, proper Jewish men should do. And then he went to a well, and he met a woman there who nobody liked and, and kind of kicked out of society because she had had too many husbands. She was treated with great disrespect, and Jesus showed her great compassion and love. If you don't follow Jesus, don't believe what you've heard. You're a smart person. You're capable of getting to know Jesus by simply reading the Gospels. And if you've never read the Gospels yourself, they don't take a long time to read. I just want to encourage you. You can do it online. You can Google the Gospel of Matthew. Go to Version. It's a free Bible app, and they'll read it to you. Or you can grab a Bible, but open up the Gospels, second half of the Bible, and read the four eyewitness accounts of this person's life. Just read it and see what kind of person he was and we believe still is. So you read this uh, picture in Matthew 23, and you get the sense, wow, uh, these people are hypocrites, they're judgmental, and they're legalistic, just like we can be, but Jesus is not. Now, later on, Jesus kind of turns up the temperature in addressing specifically these religious leaders. Now, listen to this. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean out the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees! He spired up. You blind Pharisees! 
First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That's, uh, that's strong, you know? Those are, those are some strong words. You might even say that that's kind of intolerant, which is, by the way, the last charge that we're going to be looking at today. You could say that Jesus' words towards these people is intolerant. You know, woe is not something we say much anymore. Woe, right? W-O-E. Not like, you know, Keanu Reeves' woe, but like W-O-E woe. And that kind of woe we don't use much, so we don't quite get the impact of what Jesus is saying, but he's essentially saying, cursed are you. It's the opposite of blessing. And it's a warning to these people. He's actually saying it out of love. Sometimes you've got to use a hammer when people, you know, they're kind of like rocks. And I mean, I've been a rock in the past, and God has used a hammer. And uh, these people are kind of stubborn. And so Jesus is really speaking firmly to them. He's really saying, you're condemned, you're, cur- you're cursed. You've got to address this. This is also a warning to us. Pity us. Woe to us. If as Christians we go through the motions in our faith, but we're not actually surrendered to Christ. And his spirit can't convict us of our sins. And we're not willing to acknowledge what we've done wrong and repent of it and make it right. If that's us, that's like the Pharisees. Woe to us. Pity us if we don't dig into the Bible for ourselves and then put what we're learning into practice. And pity us if we have a head that's so full of knowledge and facts ultimately to show off, but it doesn't ever translate into our lives. We're like the Pharisees. So what do you do if that's you? Well, if you're a Christian and you feel God convicting you right now of some hypocrisy in your life or perhaps a judgmental or legalistic spirit, what you do is you repent. You stop. You admit it, first to God, then to those that you've wronged, and then you turn And you begin to handle the situation God's way. You don't hide it. And you don't tolerate it. That's why I say Jesus is not very tolerant in this particular passage. But in today's world, what Jesus is saying sounds very intolerant to modern ears. Was Jesus intolerant? Which is probably the dominant criticism that I heard on those focus group tapes uh, that I listened to. It's just Christians are intolerant. They're bigoted. They're intolerant. Well... This passage sounds like that, but it's not intolerant. I guess it depends on your definition of tolerance. Many people today say Christians are intolerant and Christianity is intolerant, but what they, what they mean by it is different, different than what has traditionally been understood by the word tolerance. So the last question, why are Christians so intolerant? Well, intolerance typically in the past has meant an unwillingness to grant equal freedom of expression, especially in religious matters. It's really about allowing people to think what they want. And usually people are intolerant uh, when they're narrow-minded and prejudiced and they're willing to hold back good for somebody until they kind of toe the line. It's often asked why Christians are so intolerant. What many feel is that we as Christians don't like them very much. Some have felt as if uh, we've been judging them, like we talked about earlier. And when intolerance leads us, or any one of us, to treat someone disrespectfully or to harbor ill will towards them, this is sin. It's wrong. Jesus never rejected people. 
He loved people. He was patient with people, just like his father and just like we have to be. Jesus Christ demonstrated his love for people in his deeds, becoming one of us, suffering alongside us, dying for us, conquering death for us. This kind of tolerance, this kind of patience that God has with us, that's what we need to have. But I do think that today what is often called tolerance means something very different than what what we see in the Bible. There are three kinds of tolerance. The first kind of tolerance is legal tolerance. And what that means is, is you have a right to believe whatever you want. And the Bible advocates this. Think about the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or the right of the people to peaceably assemble and petition their government for a redress of grievance. That's the First Amendment of the Constitution. Basically what it is, is the idea that you cannot be legally punished for holding the wrong ideas. That you should be free to think what you want, to feel what you want, to associate with people who are like-minded and like-hearted, and the state, the government, should never be used against you if you don't do the right thing. That's legal toleration. And of course the Bible, Jesus Christ, the church, we all support that. The second type of tolerance is social tolerance, accepting someone else as a human being regardless of what they believe, showing them love and being open to them as a fellow human being. So I don't agree with you about something. I don't share your view on something. I don't have the same lifestyle as you. You know, that's totally fine. I'm willing to love and socialize with you, engage in commerce with you. You know, I don't boycott you or shut you down. I'm willing to befriend you. I'm willing to have you over to my house for food. I respect and I love you, even while I disagree with you. This is a kind of social toleration. It means that you love people and you're patient with people and you don't ever treat people with contempt or malice because they don't agree with you, right? That's, that's not love. And again, this is the kind of toleration that the Bible talks about. There's nothing in the Christian faith that stands against this. But unfortunately, the type of tolerance that our current culture wants is a third kind of tolerance, and it's intellectual and moral tolerance. And this is accepting and approving any and every idea or choice or lifestyle as being equally valid, equally good, equally right, and equally true. And this is something we cannot do. We love people. We want good for people. We're willing to sacrifice for their good as Jesus did for us. We're willing to be patient with people. We tolerate people in the sense that not everybody's like us, and that's okay. We can still be friends. But the idea that we're going to call true false and false true, that we're going to say something that is evil is good and something that's good is evil, that's just not something that we can participate in. God is patient with sinners, but he doesn't deny or ever approve their sin. God loves us, but this love is based on the truth. It's not based on just a feeling. Why is it based on the truth? Because you're not actually loving someone. You're not loving a person if you lie to them. And if you call something that is false true, you aren't loving somebody when you call something that's bad good. And you're not loving someone when you affirm or approve a lifestyle or choice that is foolish, sinful, or destructive to their soul. The question is, is it foolish, sinful, and destructive to their soul? And if in fact it is, the case that it is, then it's not bad or intolerant to tell someone. We all live this way anyway. None of us, none of us believe that everything is equal, that there is no standard for right and wrong. 
all of us have uh, a standard that we apply to any situation morally when it comes to the truth. And when we apply that standard, we're being intolerant for anyone or anything that doesn't live up to that standard. This is why God has given us the Bible. If you reject the Bible and the authority of the Bible, or you place other authorities over it, then you will begin to drift more and more away from the truth over your life. The Bible is our guide, and we use the truth in the Bible to evaluate every claim, every worldview, every value, every lifestyle. Claim to evaluate it so that we can decide whether we should engage in it, whether or not we should pursue it. That's what it means to follow Christ. The Lord Jesus doesn't tolerate all ideas, all choices, and all lifestyles because they're not all good, they're not all right, and they're not all true. He makes moral distinctions, distinctions between what is true and false and right and wrong, and of course, so should we. We should be patient with people and love people regardless of what they think or say or do. There is a good will we have towards them, and we work for their good wisely and prudently regardless because God loves them and values them. Everyone is a sinner like us, and we have to all repent of sin as God reveals it to us. We do this for God, and we do it by his power over the course of our life. And the truth is, in reality, no one is intellectually and morally tolerant. That's just not how anybody actually lives. Everyone has a standard of right and wrong, a standard of truth and strong convictions about which lifestyles are good and bad, wise and foolish. In the focus group, for example, that I listened to, the moderator in Austin, she pointed out that they were being very negative and critical of the Christians. And she said, aren't you being judgmental and intolerant? And they laughed and said, yes, but they deserve it. In other words, everyone has a standard that they apply. And the question is not, do you have a standard or not? The question is, which standard do you have? And is it based on what is true and right and good? And as Christians, we believe that God and his word is authority is authoritative. And if we have a standard of true, right, and good that doesn't conform or align with the scriptures, then we replace it because we trust God and the Bible is our guide. In other words, the very act of calling somebody judgmental or legalistic like this focus group shows that they have their own standard. So why is it okay for them to judge a group of Christians by a standard that they're not living up to themselves? For example, do you approve personally or affirm the idea that you know, drugs, they're, they're just good, right? Anybody can do them. It doesn't really matter if you decide to be involved in drugs. Sex trafficking, murder, adultery, lying, fraud, disloyalty. Don't we all agree that these things are bad and not good and should be opposed? And if we do, what standard are we using? We're using a moral standard. We're saying this is wrong and this is right. In our culture today, intellectual moral tolerance has become the highest good, and it's often a club that is used to beat Christians. If I don't agree with the idea that all claims are true and good, then I will not be tolerated legally and socially. If you hold to the biblical teaching, you could be fired. You could be deplatformed. You could be canceled, attacked, unfriended, written up because you've expressed the wrong views. That's what you see happening in our country today. In the new tolerance, the only sin is calling something a sin. The only truth is that there is no truth. And in this new perverted form of tolerance, the only moral absolute is that there is no moral absolutes. 
Christ is not calling you to be tolerant of all truth and moral claims. He is calling you to be patient with all human beings the way that he is patient with you. Now, this is offensive to our generation, but it's been offensive to every generation. The gospel is offensive. The gospel is offensive because the good news of Jesus Christ comes as a response to the bad news of the human situation. Bad news is we're all sinners, infected with sin, separated from God. We all deserve divine justice, eternal hell. That's a terrifying future. We're all lost, unable to repay or make right the debt that we owe God. We're dead spiritually, corrupt morally, and lost in this world. This is the biblical diagnosis of the whole human race. This is the bad news. The only hope is Jesus. And his message isn't tolerance, it's repentance. Confess our sins, admit our guilt, our weakness, our need for salvation, and receive, receive the salvation that he has won for us. In the past, our unity in the church and in America was built on a shared authority in what was right, true, and good. The Bible. As a culture, we, we, we held the idea that the Bible was the source of what was true, right, and good. And by that, we were able to unify not only our churches and our communities, but our whole nation. And it was used as a means of calling the American people and calling people forward. The Bible was used to convict America of sins. Jefferson used it in the Declaration. Lincoln used it in the Second Inaugural. Martin Luther King Jr. used it in his I Have a Dream speech. In all the cases, they appealed to this objective moral standard and called America towards justice. Today, the instability that we see in our society is because we've rejected God's word as our shared source of what is true, right, and good. In its place, everyone is encouraged just to follow their own hearts. This instability will inevitably give way to injustice. We've already begun to see it. As Christians, as ambassadors of Christ, the ones who have the good news that the world needs, we're the ones who can teach our communities, our families, this country, the truth. We bring the scriptures to a dying culture and God's word to people who desperately need to know what is true, right, and good so that they can live fruitful and productive lives, restored in the relationship to the God who created them. That's what we do. That's our mission. It's fantastic. If we wish to be free from judgmentalism, legalism, hypocrisy, and the worst types of intolerance, we have to follow Christ better. We have to be honest about who we are in our sin nature. And if you are not a follower of Christ, I want to invite you to join us and follow him. We're all sinners. We're all works in progress. None of us are righteous. We're all a mess. We're all in progress and being transformed by God. All of us. And if you want to be restored to your Father in heaven, that comes through Jesus Christ. The gospel says that our native lifestyle or worldviews are offensive to God. And the gospel says that the solution is repentance and giving our whole lives to Christ. We cannot water down the gospel to make it more acceptable to our culture. God intends the gospel of Jesus Christ to transform our culture, not to conform to our culture. And this will inevitably lead to conflict. But it's not a clash between us and other people. It's really a clash between heaven and earth. We, as Christians, need to love. We need to be patient with everyone, but never compromise the gospel. Next week, 
we're going to be looking at the last question in our series, which is, is there more than one way to God? Which is fitting considering that we finished this message talking about toleration. I'd like to ask you to take out your connection card digitally and look at some next steps that you can take in response to this message. The first is, honestly evaluate your objections to following Christ and ask to talk to a pastor about it today. This is a a really important thing. If there are questions you have about Christianity, about Jesus Christ, about the Bible, anything, then please reach out to us at Church in the Valley. We're, We're here to help you. This is part of our role as pastors at the church is to help provide you the resources you need and the help you need to get answers to questions that you need. Number two is make a commitment to follow Christ today. You may realize that much of the objections that you have to following Christ, they're not really a matter of your mind. They're more a matter of your heart. It boils down to this. Am I actually going to let God be God in my life? Am I going to surrender my life to Jesus Christ and allow him to be the Lord and to call the shots? Can I really do that? Am I willing to do that? And perhaps today you realize that's the issue. I want to encourage you to decide to surrender your life to Christ and to allow him to begin to transform you. You will never have a better life than a life surrendered and in devotion to Jesus Christ. And number three, spend the next week cleaning the inside of the cup by asking God to show you the sin in your own heart and repent. He will and you can. And over time, the church becomes more and more like our Lord and Savior Jesus and more and more of a light in this world. Will you pray with me? Father, I pray for our church today and ask that you give all of us uh, conviction about where there's hypocrisy, judgmentalism, legalism, intolerance of the worst forms, and that you would give us the grace we need to confess it and repent and make right any wrong that we've done. Lord, we pray that you would help us to never compromise the gospel, but to proclaim it in our words, but also in our deeds. Help us to love others the way that you love us, to do good for others as you do good for us. We thank you for the word of God, the authority that we have. We thank you that you teach us what is true, right, and good. We pray for our children and our grandchildren, for our friends and our families, that you would spread the knowledge of your word uh, through the community that we're a part of so that people's lives can be transformed for the better. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.